The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, I would invite you to get your Bible out and open to the book of Titus. There's an outline on the back of the bulletin if you wanted to use that to follow along. Chapter 1 was about establishing proper leadership in the church to bring stability immediately and then also long-term. Every organization is built on the foundation of its leadership, whether it's good or bad. Uh, So it starts there, whether it's in the home, the workplace, the government, and especially in a church. Your your leadership pretty much dictates so much of what goes on. And so that's what chapter 1 was about. And then Paul transitions into personal relationships within the church and how people are supposed to relate with each other in the church. Uh, Chapter 3 is going to go, Paul's going to talk about how Christians should relate with other people in the world as we relate with unbelievers Chapter 2, the focus was on how we should relate with other fellow believers, especially in the local assembly. And he broke that down by age demographic for the most part. And everybody here falls under an age demographic. So if you've been with us in the series on Titus, and if I were to ask you a, a pop quiz question, and you had to answer it not out loud, but just on a little piece of paper, and in a distilled, short, summary, one-sentence bullet point, Based on your demographic, what was Paul's main concern, imperative, or command for you as a Christian and primarily based on your age? So if you're an old, older man, Paul had a main point he wanted you to be focusing on. There's a lot of other things to focus on, but he did prioritize it. I know it was several weeks ago, so we probably forgot. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. What, what about you older women in the church? What was the priority, if you had to summarize it in one bullet point, that Paul was trying to communicate to you through the Holy Spirit You wrote it down. You wrote it on the back of your hand. You put it on the mirror at home so you wouldn't forget it. You put it on the windshield of your car so that when you're driving... No, that's probably not a good idea. Um, But you're remembering that because it's a priority. What about you younger women? Do you remember what your main priority was? What about you younger men? What was your main priority that Paul commanded you? It's easy to forget, isn't it? Uh, So that's why we need these reminders. And then what about you employees? How did you do last week, by the way? If you have a job, how did you do last week if you heard the sermon last week? With your boss, your attitude towards your job as an employee in light of Scripture if you profess to be a Christian. And you had to give yourself a grade. A, B, C, D, F, Z. You don't need to tell me that's between you and God and your boss. But anyway, just a good reminder. So that's a summary of Titus chapter 2. And so now we come to the conclusion of Titus chapter 2, wrapping up the imperatives of these relationships Uh, To answer the questions for you, in bullet point form, here are the answers of the imperatives of the priorities. If you're older men, Paul said, you need to focus on being a stable example in the church. Just a rock-solid, stable example in the church. If you're an older woman, you need to focus on being a model of how to control your thought life and your mouth. Especially for the younger women in the church. That was Paul's point of emphasis In the past, if you're a younger woman, a good way to summarize it is that you need to get under the mentorship, discipleship of older godly women in the church. That's the priority. And then those older godly women help you with all those other commands and imperatives that Paul delineated there. If you're a young man, what was your main imperative if you had to summarize it? Well, based on what Paul wrote, I would say this. The main imperative and command was, if you're a young man, you need to learn to control your thoughts. You need to control your thought life. If you're a young man, you're probably saying, Amen. I can relate to that. And then if you're a worker or employee, as I am, 
we need to focus on submitting to and respecting our boss and authorities. So that's just a quick summary of the content of Titus chapter 2. So Titus chapter 2 really is a whole bunch of commands and imperatives. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this. Stop doing that. Refrain from doing that. Do you know some people don't like being told what to do? As a matter of fact, being told what to do, especially when we're being commanded to do something that actually is easy for in our nature to do, when we're getting commands, it kind of goes against uh, human nature to be told what to do all the time and be corrected. Uh, but the New Testament is filled, especially Paul's epistles, are filled with these imperatives and commands and expectations and obligations of being a Christian. And so now, the summary in Titus chapter 2, Paul wants to wrap up all these imperatives and commands and obligations and set the proper foundation of how we're actually supposed to pull all this off because it's, it's hard to do all these things on a regular basis that Paul is asking us to do. Young men, control your thoughts. Yeah, that's easy for you to say, Paul. And it's present tense. Continually and always as a pattern of life can protect and guard your mind. It's like, wow, that is not easy to do on a regular ongoing basis. It is hard. We live in a fallen world. I have sin living in me. There's a civil war in my heart according to Romans 7, 14-25. In every Christian's heart and soul, there's a civil war. And you're faced and confronted with it every single day. So it is not easy to fulfill all these imperatives that came down from on high from God Almighty through the conduit of the Apostle Paul to us sitting in the pews. How do we do this? This is a battle. The Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is hard. Wow, I didn't get an amen on that. But anyway, um, well, how do we pull this off? Well, the answer is in 11 through 15. Just by way of summary and introduction, you can't do it in your own strength. I can't do it in my own strength. It doesn't come from human will or ingenuity. We can't do it on our own. We need something outside of ourselves to help us, empower us, strengthen us, guide us, protect us to fulfill all these supernatural divine decrees that God has thrown in our lap. So it's not just sheer human will, willpower. I grew up with a philosophy of willpower in my home. It was not a Bible-believing Christian home. But pretty much that was a serious philosophy that we were taught and we're supposed to try to implement. Willpower. If you just think on something enough, it will happen. If you just grit your teeth hard enough, it will happen. If you just roll up your sleeves high enough, it will happen. And I remember one winter, I, was, I must have been in like first or second grade, and I got nine older brothers and sisters, and Christmas was a big deal, and we lived in Denver, and we were on the brink of having a Christmas without snow. That, that is ghastly. That is unthinkable. And so one of my older siblings just began to implement this philosophy of just think it over and over again and it will happen. And they just began to write snow on a piece of paper. Snow, 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 snow. And then pages and on both sides. I will never forget it. We still talk about it. And, she, and all week long, she's just writing on... And so she must have had 20, 30 pages of handwritten snow, 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 snow. I go, what are you doing? This was the power of persuasion and will and all that other stuff and just thinking it happened. And uh, yeah, I don't think it ever snowed. That did not work. That's why it became such an important lesson for me. Is This did not work. So that's just one example of human thinking of trying to make things happen. We can't 
do supernatural expectations without the help of God. And so this passage is to encourage all of us as Christians because we get frustrated in the Christian life. I don't know if you had any point of frustration this week as a Christian when you felt like either you fell short or you were frustrated with yourself or you didn't quite reach the mark or you disappointed God and you knew it or you felt guilty in your conscience about something. That is normal if you are a Christian. That means that your conscience is actually alive and well and it's working and the Holy Spirit is convicting you and trying to speak to you. So being guilty is not inherently in and of itself a bad thing. Many times it's a good indicator that you're being receptive and sensitive to what God's trying to show you in your life. But if you had uh, you know, some of those setbacks this week, that's normal, that can be healthy, and we've got to be reminded we've got to go to the right power source. And that's what this passage is all about, going to the right power source. And so the title of what I put here, Titus 2, 11 through 12, Godly Living, because that's what God wants from all of us in our respective age categories as we relate with one another. Godly living, and here's the challenge, in a godless world. We are swimming upstream, aren't we? We are going against the grain. We are in the gauntlet and get taking shots everywhere we go. Not only are we swimming upstream and the battle out there in the world, we've got a battle on the inside of us that doesn't help either. So, But God's promise is if you're a Christian, you can actually have some godly living in your life. You can fulfill that mandate that God expects. Godly living. If you're a professing Christian, are you manifesting godly living in your life on a regular basis in terms of a lifestyle and at a minimum, at least the desire of your heart? I'm not, I'm not talking about perfection. One of my favorite seminary professors would ingrain in our brain for the three years that I was there. Gentlemen, it's the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life. Because we aren't perfect. But this is talking about we have supernatural power from God to have godly direction in our life to be trying to fulfill this mandate that God has called us to live godly in this world. So let's go ahead and look at verses 11 and 12. Summarizing after talking to all the age groups, okay, everybody, here's what you're obligated to do. Here's your priorities. Here's what you need to do. But here's how you do it. And here's why it's possible. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If you wanted to, in a real practical way, you could put your own personal name in there if you're a Christian. It's talking about you. And the grace of God is talking about the grace of God, by the way, in verse 11. That's not just an attribute of God. Grace is undeserved merit. So say the theologians. What does that mean? Well, that means God does good to us, is merciful to us, blesses us when we don't deserve it. And we can't earn it. That's the grace of God. Just because God is a, a loving, gracious, merciful God. He is by nature a Savior and He is gracious to sinners. And those who have received the grace of God received undeserved goodness, blessing, treasures of blessing from God the Creator of the universe. That's grace. It's undeserved. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. That flies in the face of human nature, by the way. And works righteousness. So for the grace of God has appeared. So not only is grace just an attribute, it's even more than that. In this context, grace is actually a person. Grace is the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate. Jesus is grace incarnate. 
And that's literally what the context is talking about. So it's really talking about how Jesus has appeared. The Savior has appeared. He, he came. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He fulfilled His mission. He came as the Savior. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He went to the cross willingly. He died on the cross in fulfillment of Scripture. He absorbed the wrath of the Father on the cross. He was punished on behalf of sinners as their substitute. Willingly. He died in fulfillment of Scripture. He was buried. He raised Himself from the dead three days later. And the Father and the Spirit also raised Him from the dead, the Lord Jesus. And then He ascended on high and Jesus reigns as the Lord of the universe and the Savior of the world today and a personal Savior to everyone who has put faith in Him as the Savior. And that's what this is talking about. The grace of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ has appeared. And as a result, all of us who are Christians, salvation has been brought to us very personally. Instructing, verse 12, me, Cliff, to deny ungodliness in my life. Also to deny worldly desires that confront me in my life so that I, Cliff, might live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's what this verse is talking about. That's how we need to apply it to ourselves. So now we'll just unpack it. And I took these two verses and just wrapped them around three pertinent questions that will help us understand better these two verses. And the first question is, what is the power for godly living? What is the power? I already addressed that, that it's not human strength or ingenuity or willpower or mystical religions or whatever. Uh, simply, it is the grace of God. The grace of God is what enables us to live a godly life and fulfill all of the mandates and imperatives that God has called us to in Scripture. That is the source of power. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the grace. He's the gracious one who has appeared. He called sinners to Himself. He has saved some. And if you are one of those who has been saved, He brought salvation to you. Salvation in verse 11 is the big umbrella term of salvation and all that it means. Salvation is the most generic, broad-sweeping term in the Bible of the good work of God that He does towards sinners. And it means many different things. Salvation is it can mean rescue, physical rescue, but most of the time it's talking about spiritual rescue, spiritual deliverance, spiritual forgiveness, spiritual justification, all the spiritual blessings in your life. That's all salvation. We've been saved from our sin that condemns us to hell for all eternity, that condemns us to eternal death. We've been saved from the devil. We've been saved from the fear of death. We've been saved from this godless world. That's salvation. Big, broad term. And in that act of salvation, God has given us all kinds of wonderful blessings and gifts. The moment you got saved as a Christian, you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. It's one of the greatest gifts we have. And really, that's, that's our resident resource of power to live the Christian life. Is the Spirit of God who lives in me. So I'm called and obligated to do all this stuff and I think, well, in and of myself, I can't do that. Well, that's true. You can't. I can't. But the Spirit of God who lives in you and who lives in me can enable us to actually fulfill these supernatural commands. It's the Spirit of God living in us. And that's all bound up in this idea of the grace of God and the salvation that He imparts to us that we didn't earn or deserve. What is the power of godly living? It is the grace of God in our life. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. When it says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, that word means manifest or it's become revealed. And it's become revealed in a way that hasn't been revealed in the past. There are many things about Jesus Christ that were uh, hidden, unrevealed, 
shadows in the Old Testament. Starting with His name. Jesus, He's never called Jesus in the Old Testament. That was revealed in the New Testament. Jesus means Savior. And so many other wonderful things about the Lord Jesus were revealed at His birth, through His life, His death and resurrection, His ascension on high. It's all been made manifest. Uh, fully revealed the plan of salvation ever since Christ came. And the New Testament has been written for us. So that's what that manifestation or appeared is talking about. The, the fullness of everything we need to know about God as a Savior and everything we know about living a fulfilling, successful Christian life has already been revealed through the ministry, the person, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you got your Bible there, turn to Second Timothy because this is just a wonderful complimentary passage. It says the same thing. A few more details. Second Timothy chapter one about how the grace of God has appeared and has been revealed by God and made manifest and is the source of our goodness, our strength, and our ability to live a godly life that, that pleases the Lord. It all came through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the plan of the ages, the eternal plan of God. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, starting there, Therefore, Paul says to Christians, Do not be ashamed uh, of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Power of God. See, the power of God. Where does the power of God come from? I need the power of God in my life. To overcome the world, to overcome those habitual sins in my life. I need the power of God. Well, it came in verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works. We can't do it. But according to His own purpose. It was His decision, His choice. That's sovereign. God decided to do it. He also did it with grace. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't work for it. It was simply His goodness towards us. His grace, which was granted us, and it came through Jesus Christ. And it was from all eternity. This is a plan that God had in eternity past. And verse 10, this plan has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. There's the power. There's the answer. There's the good news. Our power to live a godly life comes through the truths inherent in the Gospel and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. All of Him, none of me. So where is this power that I need to live the Christian life successfully? It's in the person of Christ. Knowing Him, the blessings He's given me, salvation, forgiveness of sin, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the supernatural gift of prayer, the Bible, the Word of God, which tells me God's thoughts. And before we go on to point two, look at Philippians. If you flip back a few books from Titus, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Paul talking to Christians. 12 and 13. He says, So then, my beloved, okay, Christian, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, obey, do what God wants you to do, work out your salvation. You and you can obey because you're saved. God saved you. And here's a command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's an obligation. Something you do, it's something I do. We are obligated to do it. We need to work out our salvation. That doesn't mean work for our salvation. It means we're already saved and we need to live it out. 
practically in life from day to day. It's the walk of sanctification, growing as a Christian. And it's something we are commanded to do. Work out your salvation. We are obligated to do it. But there's the balance in verse 13 in the next verse. For it is, get this, God who is at work in you. That's how it's possible. And what that's referring to is the Spirit of God living in you as a Christian. I can't do it. Well, I can't do it on my own. I'm supposed to do it. But I can only do it through the energizing supernatural power of the indwelling Spirit of God that I received when I got saved. That is the grace of God that enables me to live a victorious Christian life. The power of God is all in the grace of God. Next question. What prevents godly living? Here we get this command. Okay, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I said it's a struggle. And there are specific things that trip us up. There are specific things that undermine us. There are specific landmines we're supposed to be looking out for and avoiding. And Paul gives us some of those very specific things we're supposed to pursue to fulfill this and also to avoid. So that's question number two. What prevents godly living? Well, it's ungodly behaviors and desires. Ungodly behaviors and ungodly desires. It's really that simple. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. By the way, when it says bringing salvation to all men, that doesn't mean that every person ever born will be saved. It just means generally that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and anyone who puts their faith in Him will be saved regardless of what nationality you are, what ethnicity you are, whatever your economic status is, whether you're male or female, an adult or a child. All men is just a universal call that Jesus is the Savior towards all of humanity. He has no partiality. He doesn't just favor the Jews or men or whatever it is. Salvation is available to anybody who would put their faith in the Gospel. So that's what all men means. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing, present tense, instructing us as Christians to do the following. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So what prevents God living? Well, According to verse 12, ungodliness causes us to stumble. It impedes us. And wrong desires. These are wrong actions and wrong desires. Wrong actions, wrong attitudes. Wrong actions, wrong aspirations. That's what we really need to focus on. So in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness. What is instructing us in verse 12? What is instructing us, teaching us, discipling us, prompting us, convicting us, helping us, directing us? That's what that means. Something is directing us. What is instructing us in a regular ongoing basis to put away ungodliness and wrong desires? What is that? Well, it's the grace of God. Well, what is the grace of God? How does the grace of God instruct us? Well, we talked about the grace of God is Jesus Christ, knowing Him through the Gospel. And specifically, it's the Spirit of God that lives in the Christian. So literally, that's how you could think of it. The Spirit of God who lives in you as a Christian, one of His roles in an ongoing manner is to instruct us, help us deny ungodliness in our life and also to deny, reject, watch out for, refrain from ungodly desires. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He is the great teacher. He is our helper. So that's, I believe that's what verse 12 is referring to. This grace of God given to us in salvation through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit as He uses the Word of God in our life, He is instructing us and teaching us to make a priority of denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness, it's a common word in the New Testament. It just means a lack of reverence and fear of God. 
a lack of reverence and fear of God. And when you don't have a legitimate, healthy fear of God the Creator and Judge, and you just abandon that and abandon your conscience, then you will indulge in all kinds of evil, wicked, immoral behavior. And that's what ungodliness is. It's abandoning a fear, a healthy fear and reverence for God. Some people have a flippant attitude towards God. That's kind of the same thing. That's not a healthy fear of God. Oh, I believe in God. 97% of Americans, are um, they believe in God. Yippee! Well, not really yippee. Because a large majority have the wrong view of God. And they don't have a reverence and a fear for God, Creator, Savior, Judge. That's what that word is talking about. As a matter of fact, in that same verse, the word ungodliness and the word godly, it's the same Greek word. It just has preposition, different prepositions and prefixes on the beginning of the word. No fear of God and a healthy fear of God. It's the difference between ungodliness and godliness and how we live. And also the byproduct of that is our actions. If you don't have a healthy, reverent, legitimate fear of who God is, what He requires, then your actions will follow suit. And I just want to give you one example of this lack of a proper fear of God and how it manifests itself in ungodly actions. Look at Romans chapter 3. Flip back several books just after the Gospels. In Romans chapter 3, I want you to look at verse 18. Paul's talking about unbelievers. This was true of anybody before. The, this is true of Christians before they got saved. So, this was my biography for 19 years before I got saved. This was your biography before you got saved. This is the biography of anybody who's not a Christian right now. This is God's diagnosis. They may, may not manifest all these characteristics in the same way. Some of them may be hidden and done in secret and also just maybe done in their heart. But look at the sinful actions. Uh, but first, in Romans 3.18 it says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, Now that's the climax that he's leading up to. That's the crescendo. That's the summary of what typifies an unbeliever. Ultimately, there is no proper fear, awe, reverence of God. That's true of every unbeliever whether they recognize it or admit it or not. Now, before that, starting in verse 13, he gives all these characteristics and attributes that are true of an unbeliever, especially in their heart, because of their lack of fear of God. So look at some of those actions. This is godless behavior. This is ungodliness that he's talking about in Titus. Their throat is an open grave. Their, their words are just vicious. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. They're liars. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Cursing. It just comes natural to an unbeliever to just have a filthy mouth, no fear of God. I mean, I just done, yesterday we went on the men's event and went to the car racing thing. And obviously some of those guys weren't saved because of the way they were talking. They're giving us instructions, using cuss words. <laughs> they don't even realize it. They don't even bat an eye. They don't even realize they're dealing with a church group here. You need to define that cuss word because we're not sure what it means. That's what I'm thinking as they're talking. But, you know, there's no, it doesn't bother their conscience until they talk. It's true to their nature. And that's what he's saying here. It's an unredeemed nature. This is how they speak. This is how they think. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they 
have not known. They're not into being peacemakers. Why? Why are they like this? Verse 18 tells you why they have no fear of God. So going back to Titus. The word ungodliness talks about a healthy fear. And that will reflect in our actions. And then the other thing that we're supposed to be uh, denying in our life is ungodly actions cultivated through a proper fear of God. Is So we focus on our actions, denying ungodly actions. And we're also supposed to be denying uh, worldly desires. Verse 12. The Holy Spirit is instructing us continually and telling us, reminding us, prompting us, convicting us. McManus, you are supposed to be denying worldly desires, illegitimate desires. The word for desire there is not inherently always evil. That word is, occurs throughout the New Testament. Epithumia. It's, thumos is desire. Epi means a very intense desire. We can have very intense, legitimate, good, godly desires. But it's defined as worldly desires. Wicked, wrong, evil desires. We're supposed to avoid those. Not just avoid them, it says deny. It's a very strong word in verse 12 for the word deny. It's used 31 times in the New Testament. It is something that we do. It is not a passive action. It is an active action. It's something we pursue. It's something we are responsible for. We need to deliberately take a stand against these things. We need to know the enemy. Prepare ahead of time. Preventative measures. Deny it. Think of Luke 9.23. Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Deny yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ. Deny, deny, deny. That is a discipline of the Christian life. It should be denying ourselves. And specifically, not denying ourselves of good things that God wants to bless us with, denying ourselves of worldly desires, illegitimate things. We're confronted with those all the time. Uh, we just have desires as human beings. God made us that way. And then what the problem is, is because of our sin, uh, even legitimate things become illegitimate desires. Food is a good thing. Food is a blessing. God wants us to enjoy food. According to the book of Timothy and so many other verses, uh, food is great. It's a gift from God. But because of our sin, we can abuse that desire for food, can't we? From eating too much of it, eating the wrong thing, uh, drinking too much alcohol and getting drunk, which is a sin. So that's an example of an illegitimate desire or a worldly desire that we need to deny. So food. Uh, another way to translate the word desire is also lust. Lust. So these are some illegitimate lust and desires that are common in all of our lives that we need to deny. We need to be deliberate about, proactive about, always on guard about, asking God's help in this regard and accountability from others to refrain from Pursuing these desires that come so naturally often to us as sinners. Um, how about this? Lust and desire for power. Very common. Lust and desire for popularity, for recognition, for prestige, for positions of authority, for attention. Just attention. I want my name called in class. I want my name called over the microphone. I want my name in the newspaper. Here's another lust. Uh, I already mentioned that lust for food and alcohol. Here's some others. Uh, sensual or sexual lust that's illegitimate. Sexual desire is a gift from God. The abuse of that becomes an illegitimate worldly one. That's everywhere in the world, all over television, magazines. You go on the, just about every store. It's on billboards on the street. It's everywhere, on the radio. can't get away from it. Uh, lust for control, controlling other people. That's an illegitimate lust and desire. There's the gift of leadership that God has given to people and then there's people abuse that and then they turn it into control and micromanaging people. 
that the desire, that's part of the curse where God told women not to desire or lust for power over their husband. That's backwards. So that's an illegitimate desire to control people, to control your husband, to control whoever. Uh, other lusts and desires. Desires for material possessions. Desiring things, desiring money, desiring wealth, desiring temporal things, the things of this world, uh, desiring to please self, desiring to be self-serving, desires to be self-oriented. Uh, these are things that we can all relate to. So we have quite a challenge. And that thing is just loaded. That is packed when he says, deny worldly desires because it's all around us and it's inherent to our sinful nature. But the Holy Spirit is there to help us, to give us the power and also to continually instruct us and specifically through His Word of how we can avoid ungodly behaviors and ungodly desires. We need to to deny self, say no to self. It's okay to say no. Okay, let's go on to uh, after question number two, what prevents godly living, which is ungodly behaviors and desires. Uh, Question number three, what promotes godly living? So two is negative. Avoid these things, deny these things, put off these things, and then there's, it's supplemented and supplanted with the positive. So there's a beautiful balance there. And bring on these things, pursue these things, supplant the denials with the following positive commands and attributes. Number, question number three is what promotes godly living? Nurturing the mind, will, and spirit. There are three things that Paul summarizes for us here. Nurturing the mind, the will, and the spirit. By the way, the verbs being used here are in the present tense, and again, in a command, in an imperative, when, it, when there's a present tense verb, there is an expectation that this is an ongoing pattern of behavior for us. This is a lifestyle. It's a lifelong pursuit. Don't give up. So the Spirit of God in verse 12 is instructing us as believers to put off ungodliness and desires, uh, worldly desires, but the Spirit of God is also instructing us to pursue certain things, and that is the second part, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, in the right here and now. Right here and now. Making, we, we don't make up excuses. Oh, we live in a fallen world, therefore I can't do it. Oh, we live in a fallen world and I'm cursed with sin living in me, therefore I can't do it. No, in the present age, right now, God expects us to do it. We can. We can make headway. We can make progress. We have the Spirit of God in us, instructing us, helping us. Three areas to focus on. We need to focus on living sensibly, righteously, and godly. I put the mind, the will, and the Spirit because the first word that he says we need to live in pursuit of is living sensibly. Some translations say soberly. Sensibly is a good translation. Paul's already used this, this same word four times. Sensibly, it has to do with your mind. It's how you think. Control your thought life. It starts there. Godly behavior starts with controlling your thought life. Every kind of action or behavior can be traced back to a thought. A thought life. You will act in accordance with your thought life. So it makes sense that Paul starts there. Control your thought life. Live sensibly. He told the older men, live sensibly. Control your thought life. He told the older women, control your thought life. He told the younger women, control your thought life. He told the younger men. Control your thought life. Same Greek word. And he summarizes it again. It starts with a thought life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, says Paul in Romans 12. Love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind and soul. Reign in our thoughts. Submit our thought life to God and His Word. So it starts there. So the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to think correctly. Inevitably, when there's like a conflict in the church or you're doing counseling of another believer, usually the first thing you're addressing is their thoughts. They are thinking the wrong way. 
they're operating on wrong information. That's why this is such a priority. You are what you think. And so that's what the word sensibly means. Hence, uh, what promotes godly living? Right thinking. We need to nurture the mind. Left to yourself, you will think the wrong things. I will think the wrong things. Our, our, we have to have ongoing supernatural uh, input into our mind like a computer does, and it needs to come from the Bible. The Bible and only the Bible. Word of God in. Taking it in. Drenching our mind. Drenching our brain. But that's where it's got to start. That input. So nurturing the mind. The next word he uses, and I define it this way, is we also need to nurture the will. Uh, the Holy Spirit instructs us to live sensibly, think right, and also to live righteously, to live the right way. Righteously. That, that means to do the right thing. That means to comply with the Word of God. That means to obey the Bible. To live righteously means to obey God. And in order to obey God, you've got to know what God expects and what God says. The only way to know what God says and God expects is to read the Bible. Because that's how God speaks to us today. He speaks through Scripture. In Moses' day, he spoke through Scripture. And at times to Moses, he spoke face to face through a prophecy, a dream, a revelation, an angel, audibly, if you will. God does not do that today. That's what he told us in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. He speaks to us through his Son as given through his Word. So if we want to live right or righteously, we've got to go to God's Word, which tells us how to live right. It's really that simple. Sounds passe. Sounds like a religious platitude. Oh, the Bible. Just read the Bible, take in the Bible, obey the Bible. Is that what you're saying, Pastor? Yeah, that's what I'm saying because that's what the Bible says. Live sensibly. Live righteously. Living rightly in accordance and conformity with the will of God which is revealed in Scripture. And the emphasis in the word righteously in this passage right here and in many other passages by Paul, righteously, is how we live towards others. We're living right in how we interact with other people. So the first one sensibly has to do with our mind and our own personal discipline towards us. This has to do righteously with how we interact with other people. The emphasis on our actions. And the Holy Spirit's trying to help us to do that. And then that third word he gives us of we need to what promotes godly living? Well, nurturing the spirit. So it's nurturing my own private thought life. It's nurturing my own Life and how I live righteously based on my understanding of the Word of God as I relate to other people. So it's other-oriented. And then the last one, and appropriately so, focuses on my relationship with God. And that's the word godly. What promotes godly living? Nurturing the Spirit. Nurturing your devotional life. Nurturing your personal relationship with Almighty God. It's, it's talking about nurturing a close walk with God on a very personal and intimate level. When was the last time you just talked to God the Father as your Father, intimately, quietly in your own heart, thanking Him for the day, thanking Him for the latest blessing, running to Him for a need that you had. Father, help me. Not ignoring Him. Also talking that same way, very personally and intimately to Jesus. Lord Je like you would your best friend. When was the last time you sent a text to Jesus? Well, I guess you can't do that. Well, anyway, that's how we communicate today. Texting, emailing, texting, texting, texting. How are we doing with nurturing this very personal, intimate, supernatural walk and devotion with God that's just between you and the Creator and Savior of the universe? That's what that word means. Godly. So this is God word. So what promotes godly living in your life? This ongoing, very close, intimate walk with God. 
Some people do that in the devotional very faithfully during the day. Some people talk to God throughout the day in little prayers, thanking Him throughout the day. So there's a lot of different ways you can cultivate that very precious relationship that's in yours is unique to you. No one else has this personal, intimate walk in your friendship with God and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit that you do. And we need to continue to cultivate that and not forget that or take that for granted. Go have some time and talk with God your Father and Jesus your Savior and the Spirit your Comforter. Just the two of you. No, just the four of you. Sorry. The Trinity in you. That promotes godly living, godly thinking, godliness in this life. Because when you're walking close with God, intimately with God, you love God, He loves you and you know it. You want to please Him, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, in all that you do. That when you go astray or when you sin, then you feel guilt. And appropriately so. Right? Your conscience isn't seared. That's healthy. And you can make amends. You can apologize. You can repent. You can ask forgiveness. And then God showers you with forgiveness and restoration and comfort. And lifts you up. Grabs you by the hand. Gets you back on your feet. And gets you back in the walk of life. So it's not just... I guess this is almost the opposite of just strictly an academic understanding of God. Oh, I know that doctrine. Oh, I know that theology. Well, theology is good and doctrine is good and that's where it starts. But it doesn't, it doesn't end there. The doctrine and theology is supposed to lead to something greater and that's a personal, intimate friendship with God. Abraham was a friend of God. That is amazing. That is not the kind of terminology, phraseology you are going to hear in any other religion in the world. Islam does not teach that. You are not taught to be a friend of Allah. Or any other religion. That's unique to biblical Christianity. Abraham was a friend of God. And the book of James says that every Christian, every believer, is a friend of God as well. Friend and the Lord Jesus, our brother. So there's three great questions. What is the power for godly living? It's the grace of God. All of God, none of us. What prevents godly living? Ungodly behaviors and desires. And we need to deliberately, proactively deny it. Put it away from us. Run from it, as Joseph in the Old Testament ran from the temptation. And then finally, what promotes godly living? The positive. It's pursuing the nurture of our thought life, knowing God's Word, and walking close with our Father. And as a result, we can walk with a clear conscience and have peace with God and literally please God with our life. That's an amazing concept, to please a holy God, and it's possible. Let's go ahead to this wonderful, gracious God, our Savior, and pray to Him and thank Him for this morning and also as we prepare for communion. If you would pray with me. Father, we do thank You for our time together and <clears throat> the time of worship we've had to sing to You, to interact with other believers, uh, fellow saints, where the blessing of that in Your Word says that we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another. Also for the great privilege of studying Your Word together and learning from You, learning Your thoughts. Thank You for the reminder this morning that You desire for us to live in a godly way in a difficult situation with sin living in us and sin in the world around us. Thank You that we have hope in salvation and the Spirit of God who empowers us. God, help us to walk closer with You in an intimate way that we wouldn't be distracted by so many things that so easily entangle us and get our mind and our focus off You. 
And God, help us to not be self-focused, but to be other-oriented and primarily focused on You. Keeping our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ, His beauty, His glory, and the goodness and grace You've extended to us as a, a gracious Father. We thank You so much for that. We just pray You would fill our hearts with thanksgiving, adoration as a result. And we pray all of this that You might be glorified in it. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.